listening to Tabletop Genesis, a podcast by Genesis fans for Genesis fans. Welcome to Tabletop Genesis. This is your host, Mike Lord. This is Ellie. Hello, everybody. This is Simon. This is Stacy. And Tom. We're taking a little bit of a different tack for today's episode. We are not, again, repeat, not talking about an album this time because we have our first interview with the Tabletop. Tom Roche and I, in the company of Elisa, were able to sit down with Mr. Steve Hackett when he was over here in the United States doing his From Acolyte to Wolflight tour. We met up with him in Collingswood, New Jersey, and we had a nice sit-down with him. And we were able to chat with him for a while backstage at the venue that he was playing at. You'll hear some background noise as we go through the interview. That's some of the other band members and backstage activity happening, but we think his voice is still very clear. Uh, Tom and I re-recorded our questions for this just to make ourselves a little bit clearer so that you can hear our fascinating questions. <laughs> and so we'll jump right into the interview, and then afterwards we'll talk about the responses that Steve gave to the tabletop. To start off the interview, I asked Steve, talking about his newest album out, The Wolf Light, and we were talking about the themes from Wolf Light and kind of the approach that he took to creating this album. So he gives a very in-depth answer to this to this question. Uh, recording the album's one thing. Uh, doing it live is, is another matter. It's right. a, a completely different uh, sport. Uh, it's it's so different. But I'm having so much fun on this on this tour. I'm having far too much fun. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's been it's been great. We're doing the album for years now. I, I've had the idea of doing uh, the kind of album that owed as much to orchestral ideas as it did to rock. Uh, in other words, let's try and let the orchestral stuff inform the rock rather than the other way around. So um, it's a reversal. Normally, people would be thinking, oh yeah, you get plenty of rock, and then you get a little bit of orchestra, and then that's it. But uh, I was thinking that um, it was kind of almost classical and certainly cinematic. I, I had the idea that you know a lot of film scores have got a very, very big sound. It's not just the wide screen. Sometimes... You could be looking on a, on a very small screen, and um, the thing that enlarges the frame, I think, is the music. So the kind of internal dialogue of a film, the thing that informs you of the atmosphere, over and above a spoken dialogue, is is that. So having been a, a fan of, of various scores for, for years and years and years, I was trying to get that into this album. And now I've... I've tried it before, lots and lots of times, but there's just something that happened that was successful about this that uh, previous times it didn't sound like I had thousands of things at my disposal. So ironically, of course, we had a smaller orchestra at our, dis our disposal, but there were a lot of people that were tracked up and we used samples. I like to think seamlessly so that you couldn't really tell what was the difference between sample and performance and that's something that Roger and I have been working on for years and years and years. Um, so that's partly it sonically and then there was another idea of certainly with the title track the idea of perhaps subtext of freedom the idea of that whatever people were striving for historically and going right back to our ancestors ancestors the idea of the tribes that eventually made up Europe 
the people that fought the Chinese and sometimes won, uh, the people for whom the Great Wall of China was built in order to keep them out, uh, the invading hordes, the people who eventually brought down the Roman Empire, untrained as they seem to be, because of course great civilizations and cities tend to get all the press, whereas there was this great nomadic horde that practiced perhaps guerrilla warfare whilst everyone else was more interested in playing by the rules such as, as, as they were. Um, my wife Jo often tells me the story of one particular tribe, I'm trying to remember which ones they were, who you know, may have been in, in the midst of battle and then they suddenly see a hare and think that's good for their dinner and so they stop fighting and, and dive off and I think it was uh, whoever was fighting the Turks at that, mm-hmm. that point in time, uh, the other side couldn't figure out what's going on, you know, these guys aren't fighting, right. what are they doing? They're, they're running off to catch their dinner. So sure. the idea, that, well the, the subtext of you know, much of, of, of the album has been you know, the idea of, of freedom. Um, that applies to the track Black Thunder. Black Thunder is really about a, a, an imaginary slave rebellion around about the time of the Civil War. Having read stories of the Underground Railway and visited uh, the Slave Museum in Liverpool and having visited the birthplace of Martin Luther King, the actual house where he was born and seen the bed and seen the church where he preached and the same church where his aunt was shot many years after he had been assassinated. And uh, well, all of that has been fascinating and the whole link with blues, of course, you know, Afro-American roots. Having been a huge blues fan, I, I tried to write a, a blues song with a kind of a slightly gospel tinge to the soloing. In other words, you've got a choir singing away, um, but you've got a solo on top of it. Sure. So that struck me as being one way to uh, get around the idea of the predictability of blues, but you know, working with blue scale um, throughout that song, really. There's the idea of personal freedom, um, the track Love Song to a Vampire, mm-hmm. as symbolic of uh, abusive relationships and right. people who perhaps take more than they give out of a relationship, and we've all been there. So it's the idea of vampire as, as a symbol rather than the idea of vampire as uh, the man with the cloak and the teeth and the blood. It's the idea of having you know, the very essence sucked out of you. Thank you. 
So the idea of freedom, of course, is the end in sight of the um, protagonist in that song. Um, another kind of freedom just to um, enjoy yourself uh, with, with the track Loving Sea. much more straight ahead. Uh, something written in Mexico, uh, in Cozumel, a wonderful holiday that Joe and I in enjoyed there. Um, it's a very beautiful song. Though. Well, I, it was a very beautiful day and, and the melody popped into my head immediately that there could be uh, something like that. And I have to say that the band doing it live feels very, very good because we have a ton of singers on it. And on, um, on, the, uh, on the record, of course, it was, it was just me at the time. Cause, you know, you run out of time doing albums, that's what happens. I'm with Sting on that one, he says, that you never finish an album, you just run out of time. And, uh, that certainly was the case, because I was selling the studio, had to get out by a certain date, so a lot more things I would have liked to have shared out with a, a ton more people, but it was a small team who put it together and it did a very, a very nice job. Like the, you know, the history of Western civilization in the span of an album, with the, you know, 
something like that. Things, so. Yeah, I mean, you know, nothing monumental, you understand. Right, exactly. Yeah, just, so yeah, we just get it there gone. Just a brief history of uh, everywhere mankind has been. And, um, <laughs> yes, I mean, it should never really have been attempted because if you, if you put the idea down on paper, first of all, and said that this might fly, um, people would say, no, no, that won't work. So it flies in the face of all the purists who say keep rock simple and don't do this and don't do that and don't include love songs for a progressive audience. Uh, but I, I think that rock's shoulders need to be, and particularly progressive rock's shoulders, need to be broad enough to be able to encompass all of these aspects as well. So there's, um, I think, favourite themes of mine, you know, romance of places, um, probably more use of... I hate to use the word world music and world instruments because you should really be saying regional music and, and places that are common to certain regions, but it gets much more wordy. There's, there's no real good uh, word for this. The, a fusion, I thought, was a very good jazz word uh, to describe things, and collision is another, is another way of describing separate schools of thought, perhaps, and, and places and times that all merge on one, um, one disc, one song uh, with this. There was another idea... I was aware that um, certain bands that I've thrilled to the sounds of and certain writers had the element of surprise on their side. And, sure. and so uh, I had the idea that if we kept the whole thing moving and we used that pan-genre approach, we could hop between different styles, um, but we could treat the music a little bit like, to use um, the sporting idea, a little bit like a tag team, as, as one idea seems to tire, so it's partnered by another idea that comes in and gives you a good kicking in the ear. A little bit also like um, a relay race. In other words, you have the sort of campfire approach of very simple folk music, which gets interrupted by something orchestral, almost like oh, the baton gets handed on to, to an orchestra that doesn't play in a, in a straight way, but it's doing bendy notes and it's kind of eastern sounding and slightly psychedelic and all of that. So... Um, I love that. Um, I, I love that aspect with the Beatles, who I think you know brought progressive music and world music to um, to the world stage. Really, in a way, that sense of inviting in all times and climes and places. And uh, I think had they survived as a team, it only would have been a matter of time before didgeridoos would have mm -hmm. cropped up and um, duduks and various things that we've used on this. And, and the tar played by the man from Azerbaijan. Um, uh, Malik Mansurov um, and people I've recorded in, in, in Hungary so um, it was ambitious and it's always the same when you finish something you don't really know if, if it's worked or not if something is experimental um, I think that all music is a shot in the dark you don't know if it's going to work or not unless you, you know, spend your time trying to be completely unoriginal and just borrow this and borrow that and borrow that. Of course, all musicians are forced to be historians to some degree because none of us invented the notes, we didn't invent the instruments. Right. Usually, that's, um, that's the way it goes. But I had fun doing it. I worked very closely with Roger on it, worked very closely with Joe on it, and we, we wrote together. Mm -hmm. Um, that was really the core writing team. And the rest of it, as I say, huge shot in the dark, but I'm pleased that people like it so much.
We also asked Steve, given that this tour was kind of a retrospective of everything that Steve had done from Voyage of the Acolyte up to Wolflight, how did he choose the tracks he did to play for the crowd that came to see him around this time? Well, um, because it is literally 40 years ago that I did <laughs> Voyage of the Acolyte, uh, the first solo outing, it seemed as if it was the right time to celebrate that album a tad more than it had been in recent years as I'd been doing exclusively Genesis stuff with uh, Genesis Revisited. So all I can say is it feels very good to play those tunes from that time. They don't seem to have dated, he said proudly. Um, although if you'd asked me that a few years ago, I would have said, oh, you know, it's, it's a very dated album. But uh, with the passing of time, somehow it does something else doesn't it you know and playing them live keeps them alive in different ways yes it it does you know there are a few rearrangements Uh, songs seem to be able to survive that um, at the same time preserving the authenticity of things but not slavishly and to not be afraid to use the odd um, separate introduction or uh, to do a different kind of solo Mm -hmm. um in the main, I, I stick by the original arrangements and original solos, you know, because I am from the Genesis school where I was encouraged by everybody to not just play a solo, but to write one. In other right. words, let's have this written. That approach works, but so does the other kind right. of approach, of course. So I can't afford to be purist with any of this. It's it's strange, isn't it? How do you produce a thoroughbred album? You know, it's just got to be a mongrel. It's got to <laughs> borrow from everywhere. All its parts have got to um, be slightly tweaked. It seems to me, um, not so much turning a, a horse into a camel by committee, but <laughs> um, but just you know, changing it slightly. I think often. Slight differences can can make a big difference. I think people need to be able to recognise music and there needs to be a certain amount of predictability if I'm not shot down in flames saying that. The alternative is is producing work that can be, if it's equation-driven and um, you come up with something that's um, impenetrable and indigestible and and see it as something that's got to be unravelled from the word go... um, you miss the um, the emotional impact of, of hitting people, hopefully, in the heart, first of all. I, I think that's where I'm uh, headed to with this. There's not too much atonal stuff in it. There are a few strangenesses, but um, I want to produce accessible music. I think you can do that without selling your soul. I don't see any, any, um, any contradiction.
the writing process is something that I'm personally always fascinated about, and I'm, many of the tabletop members also are. We were able to ask Steve about how he writes music, both with Roger King, with his wife Joe, writing music and lyrics together, what that process is like for him and how that moves forward. Well, I think that you can't teach anyone how to write a song. It has to just be born of its own volition. Normally a song is born from two ideas. It'll be two chords or two phrases or two lines of poetry. But the sense of completion comes out of the relationship of two pieces of a potentially much larger jigsaw puzzle. I remember reading something in recent years that John Lennon said. He said, you have ideas and you join them up later. Now, um, I thought it was just me before I read that. I thought, that's what I do. I've got, you know, a thousand-piece jigsaw puzzle, maybe even more than that. I write ideas down because I'm likely to forget them. Um, And uh, it's just a case of uh, whittling away the things that seem not to rise to the surface. So if I do something that's slow and heavy, I'll write a whole ton of riffs that are slow and heavy. And what's the outstanding one? What's the one that really stands out? And it's not until you sit down and start recording that you really realise that the buck stops here. You've got to commit at some point. And um, often when I start an album, I can get... You know, if, if I've done a, a predecessor to that album that people liked a lot, it can sometimes be a, a daunting process because it means it's up against everything that you ever did that you liked already in the past uh, and that other people liked. So you're always fighting tradition to some degree. Well, we know how that goes because it's always the early work of an artist that everyone absolutely loves. And then, and then you strive for uh, relevance, uh, technique, to try and retain your passion and hope that an audience will move on forward with you. Steve has been in the music industry for four decades, over four decades. A lot has happened in that time from how music was produced and distributed in the 70s to how it's done today. So we asked him what he misses most about how it was done back then and if there's any way that it's done today that he particularly embraces. Well, um, I think that the days of a band being in a rehearsal room together and writing together can be a very good way of working if you're working in a democratic situation 
but you do need bright people who've got a very good idea where the song is is going to go and then you join it to something else and then you've got something like Genesis was but all too often you know someone will come up with the alternative idea I remember talking to Jeff Downs about this years and years ago when we were doing GTR and he said he said oh yes that totally outmoded institution called the rehearsal room and of course for a man who's got the world at his fingertips as the modern keyboard player does and computer programmer of course you know why would you want to start making agreements with people when you don't even know what you're trying to do yourself so it's how do you best get those ideas out of the subconscious and start making them concrete so there are different ways to go the danger of the modern way is that um, you come up with the sequence and it's a real pain to t- change the click track and the tempo and you know why a lot of modern music sounds mechanical um, because of precisely that, that someone set up a program and, and they stayed with it. So the advantage of classical music and jazz and folk music and any music that's played live is the fact that there can be a, such a thing as an agreement that you will slow down or you will get quieter or you will speed up all of that um, that cannot be done spontaneously with the current level of, of technology the robots don't get excited in the same way we do so um, somewhere between the two schools of thought I've had you know, great pleasure but I think it helps to have your ideas fully formed before you start engaging with any process While Steve is obviously really well-known as a guitarist, with writing his own music and his own lyrics, we wanted to explore with him how he started writing as a lyricist, and when did he realize that he could write lyrics and contribute to the, the music, both his own music and to the music of Genesis, in that respect. So basically, how did he start writing lyrics? Well, I was lucky enough to go to a grammar school, and um, they don't exist anymore in in England, but I won a scholarship to a grammar school. I wasn't particularly bright at school, but my father was a very clever man, and he he schooled me so that I would get through a thing called the 11 plus, and then I went to a grammar school, and I, I had great... I didn't really trust books. They were always telling us to read books, and I thought perhaps books might brainwash me literally I, I you know I, this is a very young child being told to read and I thought no I'm not going to damn well read books and I didn't read books until I left school and then I was struck with oh the joy of reading and with no one breathing down my neck um, so education to some degree started there at the same time I did four or five years of jobs before I joined Genesis and as a result of that I had you know, various bits of spare time whilst I was doing those jobs and I used to like to write little stories funnily enough some of them were, were poetic but I kind of felt that I was in a way still at school schooling myself to um, you know, come up with these things I wasn't going to get any marks at the end of it but the important thing was keeping the flame going and of course the real work for me started when school was over each day, getting out the guitar and the harmonica and, and working away. And um, 
The same thing after these very boring, mundane jobs that I that I did, and um, the real work would always start once I got home, and and then I started rehearsing with some like-minded friends, and um, uh, there was a thing called the Warwick Institute in Pimlico. It was ironically one of the schools that I'd been to as an infant before the age of, of 11. And you used to be able to rehearse in the classrooms. So we kept amplifiers there and stuff. And as soon as it started sounding good, people would start complaining about the noise. But that's, that's the same for every band, I expect. We told Steve that when we did our Wind and Weathering podcast that the fans voted their favorite track as Blood on the Rooftops. So we asked him what he thought it might have been about that track that has stayed with fans for so long that has made such an impression on them. In a way, I, I felt I was, I was taking a chance. And the chance was that uh, there was a great long introduction with guitar, so I didn't know if the band would let me do that or not. And then I was trying to write something, the kind of melody that I would have expected perhaps more from a, from a Jimmy Webb song, as I'm a, a great admirer of Jimmy Webb, as all the guys in Genesis were great admirers of the songwriting abilities of the very great Jimmy Webb. I was writing that kind of melody and I was writing that kind of uh, lyric, or, or rather, the verse was really mine, the lyrics were mine, the title was Phil's, mm-hmm. the chorus melody is really Phil's, okay. um, top line and chords. Um, and he came up with the line, Blood on the Rooftops. Blood on the Rooftops, The rest of it was mine. Um, he had the idea that it was um, a prison breakout, that prisoners would be on a roof with sheets airing their, their grievances. That's where the line blood on the rooftops came from. And I thought, well, why not make all the levels of action in the song happen on the TV as if you're a spectator and you, what you're actually doing is channel surfing throughout the song. And so these various disjointed things kick in. We always watch the Queen on Christmas Day. Won't you stay? Roll your eyes, see shipwrecked sailors, you're still dry.
Um, so there is actually no cohesion, really. It's kind of dysfunctional and probably apolitical. And I was just trying to write a different kind of song. Uh, other than that, as I say, Big Shot in the Dark had no idea if any other person on the planet would like it. But it got done, and I'm very pleased that it is many people's favourite. That's wonderful to know. And I think when we were talking about it, Stacey, you know, one of the podcast people, her thoughts was that it was the first song that fit perfectly in Phil's wheelhouse of, like, his range. Right. saying that. Did um, the band ever consider playing that live in 77? No. Um, it, no. <laughs> I think possibly because... It was based on a nylon guitar, and in those days you didn't do that. And I think we were heading towards the idea of the more fragile a song was. We tended not to perform it. I mean, since then, of course, I've done it many times with my own band, and um, and usually it's been with Phil. So Phil Freudian slip. <laughs> you know what I was going to say, don't you? Yeah. yeah, Gary does a fantastic job of singing that, and um, and in a way. I like to think it suits his Englishness, but there's something about that that um, you left in no doubt that, that Gary is is an Englishman. Hypnotized by Batman Tarzan, still surprised. You won the West in time to be our guest. Name your prize. You know, when he does certain songs, certain Genesis songs live, you know, um, where between Gary and Nad, they, they carry the vocal. I'm, I'm thinking of, of um, uh, Get Him Out by Friday, where it's as if there's different characters and you get that sort of uh, Gilbert and Sullivan quality about it, as if it's a kind of operetta, perhaps. And, the, the tone of the characters really comes out in their performance. Yes. Yeah, and, and, and in a way, I think, it's for me, it's reinvigorated that song, the fact that it's not on the shoulders of the great Peter Gabriel, who you know sang it in a certain way and took on various... Uh, characters himself. Uh, this way round, yeah, I, I think that it works very well, the division of, of labour and love on it. Are there any tracks or albums that you thought that didn't quite connect with the audience the way that you thought they were going to? If you had a song or an album that was like, oh, this will get them, and it just didn't do anything, or the ones that were that really connected, they were like, oh, I'm surprised that one connects. Well, um, as I say, I, I'm surprised that Blood on the Rooftops uh, finds its echo with an audience at this point. And I'm also surprised that Can Utility and the Coastliners, which was not a popular tune within the band, and I just accepted that, you know, that things that I wrote within the band, um, especially if they were kind of based on the acoustic guitar, I could see why they would be more difficult to do live. There were other things that were more robust, you know, um, parts and tracts of... 11th Earl of Mar, etc. But to answer your first question about that, I, th I think I think it's what you do with a song after it's recorded. Mm -hmm. If a song is performed live, somehow it gains a certain credibility that a record can only really hint at. Okay. You know, and I think this is true of 
you know, much of the Beatles' work that I saw on TV, you heard them doing that stuff live. You know, help. They did live on TV, and it was just as good as the as the record. And uh, you know, they, they pulled it out of the bag. Those, those guys. So that's the challenge for for all of us uh, to do that. So you could take a difficult song, for instance, like uh, Supper's Ready. Had it remained merely a song on side two of Foxtrot, it may not have travelled so far in the hearts and minds of fans. You didn't see it live. Yeah, I think that was it. And I I remember that Pete and I were in accord that if we were going to do it live, uh, it needed to be with all the bells and whistles. In other words, it needed to have the sound effects. It needed to have the train whistles. and Mm -hmm. That kind of thinking paralleled the need for having our own light show and to be able to control the environment and present the story and the various characterizations. The band was divided about that, but I thought if we're going to try and retain an audience's attention, we can't afford to have them wander off to the bar halfway through. Right. So, uh, yeah, it's going back to very early days of engaging with an audience, and uh, uh, luckily, you know, we stuck by our guns, got our own way with everyone else, and, and so um, uh, we were able to present that in such a way that something that could have been indigestible suddenly became, uh, I'm trying to think of a word, but embraceable understandable. So that was our interview with Steve Hackett. We really want to thank Steve for taking the time to talk to us on what was a very busy day for him. We really appreciate that. We want to thank his wife, Joe Hackett, also, who was very helpful in getting this set up and getting us the space to do this. So now that we've kind of said thank you, what does everybody think of what was talked about? Anything that was surprising to you or that hit you in a certain way? 
the one thing that wasn't surprising to me at having been there was just how nice <laughs> and personable Steve was. And yes. as people who have been to his concerts, or I'm sure many listening have probably even met him because he makes himself so accessible to fans. He's very approachable. You can go up and he'll talk to you about anything and he'll yeah. make the time after shows to come out and talk to you. And the only reason why our interview didn't go longer was because he had to leave to talk to other fans. Yes. So that kind of like says something about what kind of person he is. I'm a bit disappointed he didn't make tea for everybody. Else. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, I was I was actually to the question about the the lyric writing. Like that's something that I don't hear him get asked about a lot. Yeah. So hearing about his kind of childhood experiences, his school experiences, putting him on the road to do that was something that, you know, I hadn't heard before. So I was really pleased to learn that about how his how his writing developed in that respect. I was also fascinated to to hear about how Wolf Light was put together yes. and the very fact that he was kind of running to a clock. They were having to move out of the studio, you know, at, at a certain point. It's, I always find it fascinating to actually hear how a, an album sort of like finds its way into the world. And yeah, I think he collected some music from, not collected, but record some music in uh, from these musicians in Azerbaijan and in Hungary so he's he keeps on exploring different sounds and you know cultures which obviously enriches the music um, what really struck me was when he was talking about his approach to songwriting now um, particularly as he's talking about wolf light um, he he said something about how you know a prog rock fan has to have pretty broad shoulders <laughs> to be accepting of, of many different forms of music and kind of commenting on some of the maybe the lighter more simplistic pieces he had on the album which could be perceived as you know pop songs or something a little bit more accessible than what he's done in the past because um, Steve you know we think about the, the solo careers of every member of Genesis I think Steve's is the least accessible to be honest in terms of of, you know, that pop music approach. I mean, we all know Phil and Peter um, get played on the radio. But Steve, as, as Simon said, is always challenging himself, putting out there and looking for that new sound and that new way forward. So it's very, in, it was kind of interesting to hear. Yeah. He's, he's trying to be more accessible <laughs> as well. I also think it's you know? very interesting that he's still excited by the notion of collaboration. Oh, yeah. sure. Almost from the get-go, he's always wanted to get outside musicians in to expand the sonic horizon, I suppose. And that's what he was saying, something he missed from, you know, in the evolution of the music industry, or I guess producing music from the 70s to today. That was the one thing he missed, was kind of getting in a rehearsal room and collaborating right. and that organic coming together of, of different minds and, and, you know, creativity. Yeah. Like, I think that's what keeps you different and fresh and, and relevant. It's interesting how... One of the central themes of his most current album, even after 40 years, is freedom, which he mentioned a few times. I mean, that was something that I think was big in his mind back in 75, this notion of just being free, being able to have the input and the say in the album that you're producing as much as you wanted to, which I don't think he had as much in Genesis. The freedom to explore with other musicians, try other different instruments, explore different rhythms and, and world music as he says and and I think that's always been through his career a, a big theme just this freedom this relief of, of mm -hmm. being able to explore the music that you want to explore but he seems very very happy with his live band 
Um, but there's always a core set of musicians right. sitting at the heart of, of that live act. Right. For some reason, the bass player has changed every periodically. <laughs> but, it's the Stumpy Pete's job. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but that's just the availability, I think, depending upon the people. But, you know, he's played with Rob and Gary and Roger since 99, 2000 has or so. Really so, long? yeah, it's, it's been a really long-term relationship with, with those musicians. And I think that shows when you see the live shows. And I think that... That's that's something that's a credit to him that people want to work with him for that long also. This was the first, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but this is the first tour for quite a while that he has done more than just Genesis uh, music. And I, right. I, I can only speak for myself, but I, for one, am very glad to see yes. his solo work back in the mix. Right. Um, I got to see him just before he started really into the Genesis Revisited stuff and heard some of the solo material. I kind of miss that. Yes. I, I agreed also, and that was something that I think kind of offline, pre-interview, I had said to him where I was like, you know, I, I've enjoyed hearing all the Genesis material, but I'm also really looking forward to hearing his solo material again uh, and hearing some of the tracks that he played in the solo set, like Icarus Ascending. I don't think it had ever been played even by any of his prior bands back in the 70s. So, uh, and hearing Nad sing that, in a, in a register that I didn't know he could sing in. Well, I was like, wow, that's that's really good. So, uh, yeah, I really had missed that. And I think that my I, I hope that we get to hear a broader selection of his solo material in the future because it, it did feel a bit like that it was some of the very old stuff and then jump to wolf light. And there's yeah. a lot of things in the middle that I think get lost in the mix sometimes. Right. And, again, you only have two hours, two and a quarter hours or so for an entire show and if you're doing a chunk of the Genesis material there also, it does, and you have a new album that you want to put out there that yeah. you're very proud of, I think that's, it's, you can't play everything. I, but that's always the perennial yes. uh, problem <laughs> of anybody with an extended discography, is yes. how do you fit, or how do you represent the, the span of the work right. um, in a finite period of time? I mean, I have to say that, speaking personally, mm-hmm. I was thrilled to hear some of the acolyte yes. stuff. I mean, that's for me. That was um, I put that right up alongside some of the uh, the best Genesis exactly, uh, sure. stuff, and uh, it was a personal thrill for yeah. me to sort of like to, to witness sort of like you know Ace of Wands, exactly. Shadow of the Hierophants, exactly. you know, yeah, these yeah. pieces yeah. are fantastic. So I think that that wraps it up. Again, we will thank Mr. Steve Hackett very much for sitting down with us audience members. We hope you enjoyed listening to us chat with Steve Hackett. We hope to bring you more interviews in the future. And this is Mike Lord signing off from the tabletop. This is Ellie signing off. This is Simon signing off. Bye-bye from Stacy. So long from Tom. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Tabletop Genesis. Archived episodes can be found at tabletopgenesis.com, along with updates, polls, and various other podcast-related news. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes to have shows automatically downloaded to your computer when we post new episodes. To keep up with all the Tabletop Genesis activity, follow us on Twitter at Genesis Tabletop. You can like us on Facebook by searching for Tabletop Genesis, and you can email us directly at genesistabletop at gmail.com. Let us know what you think of the podcast or send us questions we can address on future episodes.
Hi, this is Peter Jones from Tiger Moth Tales and Not At All from Genesis. And you're listening to Progzilla. And I think you'll find it's good. Hmm, did that work?